So in this episode, I'm so pleased to talk to Professors Gail Sinatra and Barbara Hofer. Dr. Gail Sinatra is the Stephen H. Crocker Chair and Professor of Psychology and Education at the Ross Sears School of Education at the University of Southern California. She received her BS, MS, and PhD in psychology from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is the past editor of the American Psychological Association's Division 15 journal, Educational Psychologist, Associate Editor of Psychological Bulletin, and Associate Editor of the Journal of Experimental Psychology Applied. She is past president of APA's Division 15, Educational Psychology. She is a fellow of both the American Psychological Association and the American Educational Research Association, and currently she chairs the APA Climate Task Force. She heads the Motivated Change Research Lab at USC, the mission of which is understanding the cognitive, motivational, and emotional processes that lead to attitude change, conceptual change, and successful STEM learning. Dr. Barbara Hofer is a professor of psychology emerita at Middlebury College and a fellow of the American Psychological Association. She received her PhD from the University of Michigan from the Combined Program in Education and Psychology with a certificate in Culture and Cognition. She received a Master's of Education degree in Human Development from Harvard University. She is the recipient of the Review of Research Award from the American Educational Research Association with Paul Pintrich and the McKeechee Early Career Teaching Award from the American Psychological Association. She has published several dozen articles and book chapters and co-edited the book, Personal Epistemology, The Psychology of Beliefs About Knowledge and Knowing, and co-authored the book, The I-Connected Parent, Staying Close to Your Kids in College and Beyond While Letting Them Grow Up. Her research on epistemic cognition in adolescence has been funded by a National Science Foundation grant from the Developmental and Learning Sciences area. She is a past secretary, Division 15, has served on multiple committees, and served on the editorial board of Educational Psychologist. For the last couple of decades, Gail and Barbara have had a shared interest in the public understanding of science, and each of them has done research on student understanding and acceptance of evolution and other such topics, presenting in multiple conference symposia. In June 2011, they attended an invitational German-U.S. conference on the public understanding of science. This led to two co-authored manuscripts, the first in a 2014 special issue of Educational Psychologist highlighting work from the conference in collaboration with Dorothy Kinehues. The second article appeared in Policy Insights in Brain and Behavioral Sciences in 2016. It was these collaborations that led them to consider a longer treatment for a wider audience, culminating in the book Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It, published by Oxford University Press, which we will be discussing today. Gail and Barbara, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you today. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Let's start with this. What is Science Denial? And why did you decide to write a book about it? Why we decided to write a book about it is that we are both really passionate about the topic. We're worried about humanity, about the planet, about the ecosystem. And we think psychology has a lot to say about trying to understand science denial. I think we were also really interested in the idea that denial seems very hardcore and out there and it's about other people. And we, the more we dove into the psychology, the cognitive and educational aspects of this, the more we realized that we're all susceptible to forms of it, whether it's denial, resistance, doubt, et cetera. And that the better we understand it, the more we can figure out how to address it within ourselves as well as within others and also as educators and policymakers. Exactly. I think one of the things we wanted to contribute to this conversation is that we've done research together and others in Division 15, uh, like you, Jeff, and many others have done related research. And so we definitely wanted to bring that research to this problem and to provide some 
guidance. And hopefully uh, that will help people to confront these issues in their own work and with the general public. Barbara, you brought up a really important point that I just want to touch on for a second. And that is, you know, science denial isn't monolithic. It isn't either or, right? Everyone has varying degrees of science denial or everyone is affected by their perspectives on science. So it sounds like we really do need research into science denial because it's not as simple as saying some people believe science and some people do not. Exactly. And even the people who you might cast as science deniers are people who uh, some would call cafeteria denials. Hmm. Um, that if we think about cafeteria denial, it means that there's some things they deny, like they maybe don't want to vaccinate their kids or something, but they do believe in gravity. So <laughs> it's been treated in a way that I think is problematic. And it's better for us to think about what are the various forms of it that we need to address and what can psychologists contribute to that conversation. Well, I'm really glad that you've nuanced that and provided more complexity to that, because I do think it's going to require that kind of lens to really understand better. So what are some common misconceptions about science that can fuel science denial? There are several that we have targeted. One of them is misunderstanding tentativeness as uncertainty. Mm. So tentativeness is a fundamental tenet of science. You know, findings are tentative. They await further supportive evidence, challenges, etc., And scientists tend to hedge as they talk about something. We very rarely say we've proven something. We say we Mm -hmm. found support for that. We're waiting for challenges, waiting for more evidence. But when a lay person hears that kind of framing, they may think that scientists just don't know the answer at all. Mm -hmm. So Gail and I looked at a lot of the statistics on this from the Pew Center and other places. And if you think that, you know, 97% of climate scientists agree that they're human causes of climate change, then it's pretty disturbing to realize that that means that some people interpret that as, oh, they don't really know for sure. (laughs) See, there's some people who disagree. So therefore, the jury's still out. There's a 2018 Yale climate study that found that 73% of Americans thought climate change was happening, but only 20% thought that scientists were certain about it. Hmm. I mean, that's just really fascinating that we really doubt what scientists have told us in part because of the language that scientists use. So that's Mm -hmm. one misconception. Mm -hmm. And I think another that Gail and I've spent a lot of time talking about is the idea of the scientific method, you know, Mm -hmm. that there's only one way to go about understanding science. And so students often get this idea that rigorous testing and experimental conditions is the only way you'd know something, which is great for lab science, but not very applicable to a lot of the field sciences. Mm -hmm. So then they're troubled by inferences about how the dinosaurs became extinct or the potential impact of climate change. They don't understand the inferential abstract ways in which scientists also reason from data. So we need to do a better job explaining how science is conducted, what some of the basic premises are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important. The scientific method is not one method. And even in research conversations with other researchers, there's sometimes a misunderstanding about the one method. So that's something we've really talked about a lot and thought through and what that means. I guess the last one I would add is we know that theory means something different to lay people than it does to scientists. Theory to a lay person means a guess. And of course, theory means something quite more than a guess to scientists. And so that's another misconception in our language that we use that does nothing but confuses the general public. 
And it, I, I was just fascinated when I did research on this and asked college students about, and this was about evolutionary theory, you know, in regard to evolutionary theory, what does the word theory mean? Mm-hmm. And we coded all their responses and there were only 7% of college students could generate a valid definition of what a theory meant, even when we're applying it to evolutionary theory. And that mm-hmm. made it easier to understand why they would say things like, well, sure, you should teach intelligent design in schools because it's just another theory. Mm-hmm. You know, this is evolution is just one theory. I mean, they see it as a hunch, a general idea, a hypothesis that's untested, but not something with broad explanatory meaning with, you know, substantial evidentiary support. So I think those are three that we would point to. There are a lot others in the book, but I think those are ones that give an example of some of the difficulty that people have in understanding scientific premises. Those examples are are really powerful and obviously a bit concerning. It, it sounds to me like all of those things are kind of connected, right? When we teach science in a very simplistic way, when we communicate to students that there's a right answer for a lab experiment that they're doing in class, yeah. it, it could lead to them thinking that the word tentative or the word theory means something than, different than what scientists mean. Yeah. And I guess we need to be more explicit about that in our teaching at all levels. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, given that I found this with college students too, mm-hmm. how do we go about explaining much more specifically within science, this is what this word means. I've even had the conversation with other psychologists yeah. who say, well, that's not the scientific method or that this is the scientific method. So even uh, among trained researchers, sometimes that misconception holds. Yeah. And I, I think about how people's understandings of terms and words and how they engage with those things can really be amplified in today's world. So for example, nowadays, there's a lot of talk about things like algorithms and echo chambers and, and filter bubbles where these words get repeated and these ideas get you know amplified time and time again. What kind of role do you think those types of phenomena play in science denial? Obviously, it's huge. I mean, we've spent so much time looking at the effects of social media and media in general in terms of how science denial has been amplified. And we write about a lot of this in the book, but looking at what echo chambers are, you know, when you self-select where you get your news and information. So you're living in this little place where everything is echoed back to you that you already believe. Mm-hmm. But filter bubbles are when algorithms do that for you. You know, mm-hmm. they, through programming or machine learning or artificial intelligence, you know, based on your needs, your interests, your preferences, they figure out what you like, what you value, what you want to see, and they give you more of that. Mm-hmm. And so social media starts to amplify existing beliefs. And it's become a huge problem. And we've been fascinated by the fact that how little people actually understand about how algorithms work. And in part, we don't understand it because it's proprietary information. Google's not going to tell us. I mean, people figure out how to game the system with something like Google or Amazon or whatever. But underneath is this elaborate computer code that is deciding what to give you more of. Mm -hmm. And they really rule our lives now. And the Pew Society for Internet and Public Life has come out with a great report advocating algorithmic literacy for students, Mm. really trying to help us understand that we need to know how they work. We need to understand what they do. And I've been shocked as I've had students do experiments in my lab where I ask them to search for particular topics and then watch what they believe about what's returned to them. I mean, they still have really naive ideas about, oh, well, the top 10 things are probably the most reliable or the most valid. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. not understanding that that's not at all how it works. And when I had them search for two really interesting topics, one was, did dinosaurs and humans exist? Imagine you're a fourth grader and you've got to write a report. Mm -hmm. What would you find out about this? Well, at the time they did it, four of the top seven sites supported that, yes, dinosaurs did exist the same time as humans. (laughs) And then when they tried to use what they had learned in high school about if it's .org, it's fine. If it's .com, it's not. (laughs) That was how simple their understanding was. Mm -hmm. Then they defaulted to thinking, well, these are .org sites. How do I know not to trust them? Right. Similarly, we did one about, and you're a parent, and you're trying to decide whether to give your kid vaccinations. And what comes up often is a site called procon.org. And there are 10 reasons why you should and 10 reasons why you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So these are all really big issues. And I I really feel for every citizen in this country around the world who's trying to learn something meaningful about science that they need to know for their own lives or in order to vote or whatever. You know, this is really problematic. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things about these problematic algorithms is we say people fall down a rabbit hole. But as Barbara just so eloquently described, it's really more that you are drawn down a rabbit hole and you are drawn down deliberately by the way these algorithms are constructed to feed you more and more misinformation over time. And I think that's why instruction in algorithmic literacy is a great idea. Doug Lombardi and I published an article, as you are aware, Jeff, in the Educational Psychologist, the journal that mm-hmm. um, you and Lisa Lindenbrink Garcia edit, where we do go through some steps you might take with yourself and with teaching others, K through 12 and higher ed students, to uh, source scientific information more carefully. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that we really think is important. Absolutely. You know, the scenario you describe, I mean, it just strikes me, it's almost algorithmic perversion. You know, the algorithm is taking the information and distorting it and presenting to people a distorted representation of science. And so, again, I think it gets back to one of the many really wonderful contributions of your book. And it nuances that, yes, there are people that are denying actual science. And there are some people that are being fed this perverted view of science, they're not denying it. They simply just don't, they don't have access to good information. And they don't don't understand that. And they have access to a lot of misinformation Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. disinformation. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases, it's hard to blame people for the misconceptions they have when they are being fed this. And as Barbara said, you know, these are all connected, right? The echo chambers and the filter Mm -hmm, bubbles and mm -hmm. the algorithm it's a mix that's all connected. And so you're hearing and seeing and reading the same things over and over again. And then you hear from your friend you have coffee with the same thing again. And so it gets reinforced over and over again. And that's why people um, really do think these misconceptions are, are really true. So you've given us a great description of this rather dangerous uh, world in which we live in, this social media and internet world where there's disinformation and misinformation and malinformation and all these things. Um, And that gets me thinking about uh, the first of the five psychological constructs that you review in the book and your discussion of how they relate to science denial. And the first one's about cognitive biases. And you connected system one and system two thinking to scientific understanding. 
So can you say a bit about those connections and what they suggest about how people interact with science in you know, these social media environments and other environments that we're talking about? Yeah, and it links nicely to what we were just describing, too, because if you mm-hmm. think about, you know, psychologist Daniel Kahneman, who describes system one thinking as that rapid, intuitive response, and system two is the more reflective, analytical, logical, more thoughtful. You know, if you're driving a car and you've got to make a quick decision, hurrah for system one. You know, <laughs> we're really glad we have it. It's just that if you're trying to decide whether to vaccinate your children, you probably need to slow down and really pay attention and think about what it is that the friend in your mother's group is telling you. Right. And yet often because, you know, we're cognitive misers, we just operate on system one. So trying to figure out how to help people not quickly retweet, repost, whatever, but to really pay attention first, as Gail was just describing the stuff she and Doug Lombardi have worked on, you know, how do we get people to be more thoughtful, slow down a bit and assess the kind of expertise that is available to them, assess the kind of information that they're reading. But that requires just slowing down and thinking and knowing when to do that. We're not in any way advocating that people should be doing that all the time. Mm-hmm. If it's a restaurant review, so what? But <laughs> but it's that social media environment like Twitter and Facebook. It doesn't encourage that kind of slow, thoughtful reflection that you were just talking about, Barbara. Yeah. You know, it really favors those click bait, quick responses. And so the deliberative reflection that we're talking about is something that you have to sort of stop and force yourself to do. Don't just Mm -hmm. click and share information without reflecting on whether that information is accurate or not. You know, it, it also occurs to me that we're making it sound like this is all an individual issue. And in fact, there are a lot of ways in which big tech and social media could help us do this more. An example that I like is that Twitter decided, I think about a year ago, that if you tried to forward an article that you actually hadn't opened, you would Mm -hmm. get a a prompt that said, Mm -hmm. would you like to read this first (laughs) Mm -hmm. before you forward it? (laughs) And we need more of that. Yeah, I have seen that. And I think that's a great idea because I I certainly know that I've done a little system one poor thinking, just clicked retweet. And then it said, do you want to read that article first? And I'm going, "Mm, yeah, I I probably should. I'm not I'm not my best self at the moment. Let me let me take a pause here. So. And And I do think we should be thinking more about big tech and big solutions and how it is that some of these things could be put in place. I mean, another one of my favorites was Pinterest turned out to be the primary source of anti-vaccination information, fascinatingly. Mm. And so two years ago, they decided that was really unacceptable for them as a social media outlet. And now if you get on there and search, and Twitter did the same thing around the same time, if you get on either Twitter or Pinterest and you search for anti-vaccination groups, you will be immediately directed to a message that tells you where to go to get accurate information, Mm. links to the CDC, to the World Health Organization, et cetera. And some people share misinformation that they know is misinformation because they think it's funny or they think it's so silly that someone could believe that to be true. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that is part of what spreads the misinformation because, you know, you might be sharing it thinking, oh, this is so funny, but actually other people might not realize the joke. And so you, even when you stop and reflect and think for a minute about the content. You also have to think about your your sharing strategy 
and whether it's a good idea to share misinformation, even if you are doing it as a joke. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've learned the hard way that Twitter is not the place for farce. It doesn't <laughs> doesn't play well. Not a lot of nuance there. Yeah, uh, that can go sideways on you real quick. I, I think uh, another thing you talk about in the book that's really interesting is people's intuitive theories and how those affect the ways that they think about science. Can you tell us a little bit about intuitive theories and how that relates to things like cognitive biases? Yeah. And if you haven't interviewed Andrew Stillman, I would recommend it. He has a lovely book called uh, Science Blind and a lot of peer-reviewed research where he talks about intuitive theories that people have about a variety of things, matter, life, energy, illness, climate, force, whatever, and that they're really hard to rattle. And so this fits into stuff I'm sure Gail wants to talk about in terms of conceptual change and what we know about how to change these things. But basically, you know, if you think about our experience of the world, we think that the sun sets and yet, in fact, the earth goes around the sun. And surprisingly, 27% of people in a recent study got that wrong. But we think that most people know that. <laughs> and I think educational psychologists are likely to be familiar with the videos, the private universe from the Harvard Center for Astrophysics. They've done a series right. of videos that help us look at the intuitive theories that individuals have and look at what kind of instruction it takes to actually help people change some of those ideas. And I, I'm going out on a limb here. I don't think Andrew would agree with me, but I think learning styles fits into this category for educational psychologists. Mm. I think there's something intuitively appealing about the idea, mm -hmm. and they, it is very hard to rattle once it's been reinforced so many times throughout kids' education. And yep. I now yep. really slow down in ed psych. I do multiple revisits of it. We read multiple refutation pieces. I've decided to make it a way to teach about conceptual change because then they can reflect on their own learning and look mm -hmm. at why is it so hard to let go of this theory that in mm -hmm. fact has not served them well at all. I mean, it's disturbing when they realize how problematic it's been and how much it has been detrimental to their own learning. But I think there are so many other examples that Andrew gives in his book that are quite elegant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and these intuitive theories, they sort of come with, uh, they kind of are the ways that we experience the world, you know, in terms of our interaction with it before we become more scientifically literate and they make sense to us. You know, we seem to walk on a flat earth. It doesn't appear to be moving. And, you know, those are the issues that we deal with every day in our experience of the world. And so they are intuitive and compelling and they are hard to rattle. As we said, they're mm -hmm. just hard to change. And, it does take a lot of instruction. There's even research that shows that once you learn the correct scientific concept, if you're put under speeded conditions where you have to give a quick answer, you'll often revert to the incorrect answer. Mm -hmm. And you haven't had a time to invoke that system to deliberative processing. So uh, they're hard to shake and uh, you don't ever really get rid of them. You just have to be thoughtful enough to use your reflection to realize the scientific answer. And I think in some of Andrew's studies, he's done timed responses and looked at how much longer it takes people to give the correct answer to something where an intuitive theory underlies it, as opposed to some other example about science. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And Barbara, I think as you put it, we're kind of cognitive with misers. You know, our brains are trying to exert as little energy as possible so that we can save it for other things. And, you know, it makes 
complete sense to me that we would revert back to those intuitive theories. And it would take a long time to jostle them, as you said, which, which brings me to another uh, psychological construct that you discuss in the book, epistemic cognition. And that research is being used to explore science, understanding, and denial. How are people doing that? What, what are we finding in that area? Obviously, I could talk about this one for a very long time, and I will. I will not. I'll try to keep this really brief. But I think I think some of the applicability of epistemic cognition to science understanding and denial is domain specific. Not surprisingly, it's about beliefs about science, for example, and some of it is domain general. So we really need to look at both of those. So you know, back to your earlier question about misunderstanding science as a process, we really do need for individuals to know more about science as a way of knowing. You know, what does that mean? How's the knowledge constructed, evaluated, disseminated, applied? There's so much that is not well understood about that. Mm -hmm. But there are also some domain general issues that seem applicable to me. And particularly in the old developmental view, I'm gonna go back to that because mm -hmm. I think it's instructive in a post-truth era. Mm -hmm. When I've given public talks about science denial, I've been slipping this in there and finding out that it resonates with a lot of people as a very simple heuristic to understand others and their thinking in ways that are novel to them. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you think about people who think in absolutist terms, you know, there's a right and a wrong, knowledge is black and white, that kind of thing. At a time when authoritarianism has greater appeal, it turns out to be an easy means to sort out what's true. Just believe that person in charge. Just believe that authority. Hmm. Follow the leader. Mm -hmm. And if it's not supported by the leader, then it must be fake news. Hmm. <laughs> you know, that's a, a very simple way to get through the world. Sure. But it's also been convenient for politicians to foster multiplism, which is the next stage in the developmental hierarchy here. The idea that there is no truth, you know, that few facts hold up to scrutiny, that it's just all up for grabs. So why even bother to worry about it? I mean, that's very effective for politicians to get people to think that way and keep them there. Mm -hmm. So we need to continue to teach the skills of what, as you know, has been called evaluativism. This idea of how is it that you assess competing truth claims? How do you see knowledge as contingent, contextual? How do you learn to appreciate the role of evidence? How do you learn to evaluate expertise? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all really critical parts of epistemic cognition that we need to be doing more in the schools with. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, another key area is epistemic trust, an area that philosophers have been writing about recently. How do we decide who we trust, what authorities are trustworthy, on what basis do we make that decision, whose knowledge do we value? Mm -hmm. So all of these are critical to understanding what's going on in science denial. And then I think lastly, I'm really fond of the idea of epistemic vigilance, yeah. this idea that we need to help students be alert in their monitoring of claims and teach them the skills. And I think, Jeff, it ties into some of the stuff you've written about in terms of tying epistemic cognition to critical thinking and wonder what yeah. you think in that regard. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I agree with everything that you said. And I do think it's really helpful to hear that the developmental view of epistemic cognition is useful for people, because I do think that sometimes I struggle to talk to people about yeah. what I think is this really important concept that relates directly to critical thinking. People say, like, we need better critical thinkers. And I'm like, well, yeah. you probably want people to have better epistemic cognition, too. You just kind of don't know that term yet. So yeah, yeah. having a way to talk to them about that is really important. Um, and I know that 
you know, Gail, you have done a lot of research in how to help people think in more normative ways about scientific topics like evolution, et cetera. So I, I suspect you also have had opportunities to figure out good ways to help people think in more normative ways. Well, as you know, you know, Jeff, it can be supported. I think the key thing about epistemic cognition and epistemic trust, as Barbara has described, is that we need to have K through 12 higher ed and members of the general public all know more about how scientists come to know. Yeah. Because really, that's one of the problems is that it's not just a matter of the content. It's how do they know that content? Why do scientists concur that humans are impacting the climate? And how do we know that? It's not enough to say that they know that. And so there's where epistemic cognition, epistemic trust is so important, is understanding the nature of scientific knowledge and how scientists come to know. And then that vigilance question, of course, is how we can keep on guard for scientific mis and disinformation. But um, through the work of both of you, Barbara and Jeff, mostly, and, and other scholars in our field, you know, what we really have been exploring, like Doug and I have done, is how do you facilitate people getting there, evaluating evidence. And that's where we need to do more work. And I would encourage all of the division members who do work in this area to lean in on teaching people to weigh evidence and wrestle with how one comes to know. And it strikes me that the book really works nicely through this kind of consecutive or sequential set of ideas, right? So people have cognitive biases and, you know, we want them to be more thoughtful about that. People have these intuitive theories and they need to be more thoughtful about those. They need to better understand how science works and how scientists come to know so they can better work with these ideas that are so important to our society. And then sometimes, even when people know that they should be doing that and they're vigilant and they understand how science works, sometimes they're still motivated to think differently. And that gets into the issue of motivated reasoning. So can you talk to us about that and how it affects the goals people have for engaging with science? Well, a key part of um, my research for many years has been the um, emotional, motivational sort of hot constructs that people bring to their understanding of science. It's not a cold topic, of course. Mm -hmm. And so all these things are key to how it is that people come to wrestle with scientific understanding. And motivated reasoning is a big one. Motivated reasoning is when we are motivated um, to come to a particular conclusion, a desired conclusion, not necessarily the accurate one. And when we have that motivation, whether we're aware of it or not aware of it, our reasoning gets compromised and it will change the way we reason. For example, we might weigh information differently. We might be more critical of ideas that go against our desired conclusion And we might be a lot less critical of ideas that support things we already think are true. So, you know, one thing you hear all the time now, particularly from science resistors, is do your own research. But really, what does that mean? It means go on Google and, you know, see what turns up. And we've already said how problematic that can be. 
what will turn up is plenty of data favoring your preferred conclusion. And if you're motivated uh, to reason towards that conclusion, you'll say, well, I did my research and I found that I was right. Mm -hmm. So that is something to be on guard about, invoking your system too, stepping back and thinking about your own motivations and what you prefer to be true before you decide uh, how to weigh the evidence in front of you. Yeah, I think that it's really helpful to make sure that people understand the role of prior beliefs and people's gravitation towards those beliefs in in science denial. It's just, it's a critical aspect. And again, it's what I like so much about your book is that you both complicate and humanize science denial. It's very easy to take this kind of holier than thou, oh, those science deniers, they're so silly or they're so wrong. Science denial is a very complicated topic that affects everyone. And we all have these psychological phenomena that can affect the way that we think and can make us more or less likely to kind of find that uh, normative science idea and motivated reasoning is a great example. And I think everyone does it. And as Gail, as you said, you've got to have system two operating. Barbara, as you said, you've got to be vigilant about how you're thinking about knowledge. Otherwise, motivated reasoning can take over even when you have the best of intentions. Well, we all want certain things to be true. I have a couple of close friends with Parkinson's. And so I'm I'm pretty motivated when I see online and new treatment or a breakthrough for Parkinson's, I'm pretty motivated to believe Mm -hmm. that that is Mm -hmm. going to be effective, you know, and I have to temper my own excitement and step back and, you know, look at the research and keep from concluding something that may not yet be warranted. So as we think about all the different kinds of psychological phenomena that can affect people with even the best of intentions, another idea that you talk about that I think is really important is social identity and the ways in which one's social identity affects their understanding of science. Can you elaborate a bit on that? I think this is one of the most powerful ideas really in the book. It is social identity is so powerful. We are social people. Who you identify with, what group you identify, it gives you cues as to what to accept and what to reject in regards to science. So you wanna be in line with your in-group. And that means that um, you tend to follow that group and their thinking. And it's so powerful that people actually are kept in line. They can be threatened with even being ostracized from the group if they don't go along. Mm -hmm. I know that my colleagues with young children They've wrestled with their children's playgroups, whether there's some people in the playgroup who may be vaccine hesitant for their children. They feel they can't come out too strongly in favor of childhood vaccination because they're afraid that their kid will not be able to go play in that playgroup anymore. And try telling Southern Californians that kale is genetically modified and see what happens. Um, it doesn't go over big at a, at a cocktail party to do that. Believe me, I've tried. And so there is this social pressure to conform to the beliefs of the group. Even people who maybe want to think differently won't express those different thoughts because they want to stay with their in-group. So it has a lot of power and it's difficult to resist that community pressure. 
You know, I think it's also a shortcut for development of your own beliefs so that you may not even be aware that there's pressure within a group or anything. It's just that, well, this is how my mother's group thinks about vaccination. So this is how I think about vaccinations, or this is how Mm -hmm. my particular group of people think about wearing masks in a pandemic. So this is how I think about it. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's pretty simplistic in some ways. It's if you don't um, have your own strong beliefs already, you're probably just going to go along with the group in terms of what kinds of values get espoused. Mm-hmm. Back to system one thinking, right, Barbara? So it's reflective yeah, yeah. Um, and without having to do any research, you know, what do we think about this? Oh, we think this. So I'm good. It yeah. um, definitely happens that way. But, you know, we've been collecting lots of examples about people who do figure out how to pull away from that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people have multiple social identities, not not just singular ones. And I, I there's a yoga teacher in my town mm. who did not vaccinate her child until she was 10 because no one in her home birthing mother's group community in Vermont vaccinated their children. Mm. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. she started uh, communicating with uh, people who had kids who were immunocompromised and who were saying, you know, when you don't vaccinate your kid, you're threatening mine. And her identity as right. a caring community member trumped everything about her identity in that mother's group. It was suddenly, mm-hmm. I have to get my kid vaccinated. And she did that while her daughter was 10 and then wrote a powerful piece in the local paper about it, wow. about why it was so important for her to rethink that. And I think we're mm-hmm. seeing... Examples of that in various places now that are really important to realize that identity is multifaceted and we can Mm -hmm. pull on other parts of people's identity to try to be persuasive. That's a wonderful example. And this idea of multiple identities is really important because I think we, as educational psychologists, I'd say educational psychology maybe has not dealt with the idea of multiple identities as well as it could have, should have, needs to. So it's a really wonderful example. And it, it reminds me again, or it highlights again for me, that science denial is complex and yeah. it's not an either or topic. You know, we don't want people to not affiliate with social groups, right? That's that's unhealthy. I mean, of course people are going to do that. And I think it's also probably unreasonable to say to someone, you know, you need to reflect upon every single idea your social group has communicated to you and make sure they're all correct. I mean, that's just not that's not possible, right? We, we find people who share our values and morals, and then we kind of use them as cues. But I think what you're advocating for in the book and what the psychological research would say is that we do need people to occasionally be reflective and go, you know, let me just, let me just take a moment yeah. and, and think about what I'm hearing and see if there's, you know, different perspectives I need to consider. That's really powerful. It's not easy. It's, it's, it's not an easy answer, but I think it's the right one. Yeah. So speaking of uh, emotions and attitudes, you know, I think, again, in a really wonderful way, your book illustrates how emotions and emotional responses to science can be really positive. It's an important part of science, an important part of understanding science. So can you talk to us about how to positively leverage emotions for learning and adopting a scientific attitude? Yeah, I, I just think this is um, so important. Um, the research on emotions and science learning has really focused mostly on identifying the emotions that are present, understanding what gets evoked in the situation. I think far, far less research in science education has focused on leveraging emotions Mm -hmm. to 
towards mm-hmm. science learning. We've tried to do that in a couple of our projects. We had a project called Speedometry where we mm-hmm. used Hot Wheels cars and tracks, which every kid loves and wants to play with. And we leveraged those positive emotions and interest in the toys in service of science learning. And we did it to positive effect in a large scale randomized control trial in Los Angeles. And we found that that really did get kids interested in learning the science. And I think that's great. We are trying to also leverage interest and excitement in a project now at La Brea Tar Pits here in Los Angeles, where we're implementing an augmented reality exhibit. And today we had some kids, uh, I was out collecting data, we had some kids who were experiencing the exhibit and just having a blast. And so that's great. But, you know, we do tend to focus in education in general, a little bit too much on positive emotions. Mm-hmm. We certainly want students to enjoy what they're learning and have fun, and fun is great. <laughs> but there are some science topics like climate change and pandemics that are not particularly positive or fun, and we still mm-hmm. need to learn about them. So I think one one thing we need to do is focus on appreciating the nuance of different emotions that students might have about a scientific topic how to manage those more negative emotions, such as anxiety about climate change, or even emotions that might be traumatic as students are concerned about their future. So Mm -hmm. that's an important area of research, is how do we talk about tough scientific topics, but empower students through thinking about actions that they can do to help mitigate the impact of climate change and leave them with a reason to be hopeful. So I think that's an area that needs considerable work. Mm-hmm. I just want to jump in here with a, an example of emotions that were surprising to each of us as we found out that we were both interviewing students about their reaction to the reclassification of Pluto. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you remember this back in, yeah. in the day <laughs> when students discovered that Pluto was no longer a planet. And Gail just has wonderful stories about their reactions. And we had similar ones in our lab. Gail, do you want to tell just a little of that? Well, you know, this was a great uh, study by Susie Broughton-Jones and myself. And I know Barbara's done related work where students evoked a lot of negative emotions about Pluto. Uh, Mm -hmm. They were disappointed, angry, sad, lots of negative emotions, not many positive emotions. We did a discussion and refutational text research study with them once they sort of understood the reason for reclassification of Pluto to a dwarf planetary status. Uh, Their emotions were tamped down a little bit in terms of the negativity and they, they were more open to the reclassification, but they wanted to grandfather Pluto in. You know, they said, well, that's okay for any new planets, but can you leave, can you leave Pluto alone? So it was, it was pretty funny to see their thoughts on that. But it was really important to tamp down the negative to the extent that they could process those reasons for the reclassification. Yeah. And that's back to the point I was making that we always want learning to be fun and interesting and exciting, but 
sometimes there's some negative information and we've got to be thoughtful about how to deal with those negative emotions. You know, and, and once again, in both of our studies, it revealed how little students really understand about scientific processes that involve inference or abstract thinking or whatever. I mean, everything from these students was just concrete. My favorite from one of the students we interviewed was, well, they can't know unless they go. You know, that, just such a wonderful quote, like you have to go to Pluto to know if it's a planet. But just the, the whole scientific method was just out the window there. They, But then once mm-hmm. they begin to learn more about why do scientists make decisions like this? What's the rationale? Things do soften. But it's it's one of my favorites that coincidentally, we both worked on at the same time. Well, and I think that really wonderfully illustrates, again, the idea that things aren't straightforward, right? It's not the case that emotions in science are bad, right? The scientists have emotions, they feel emotions, those help them learn. Students have emotions about science. That's a good thing. We want them to have that. And at the same time, sometimes the positive emotions can be too much and can prevent them from learning the ways that we would like them to. And sometimes the negative emotions can be too much. And all of us need to find ways to positively or adaptively channel those emotions so that we are making progress in our understanding. And that's a much more nuanced perspective that I think will help us deal with science denial. But if we try to ignore emotions or we try to just have positive emotions, we're missing important pieces of understanding the phenomena. And your book does a really great job of illustrating that. Well, I know, Jeff, that you interviewed for this same podcast, my colleague, Mary Helen Imerdino Yang and Mm -hmm. her work on emotions. And so I know that you're aware that You know, you really can't put the emotions, quote, aside and learn without them. It is how we learn. We learn through Mm -hmm. and with the emotions. And so we need, as educators and educational psychologists, to be more aware of how integral those emotions are to the learning process. And we need to, as you pointed out, leverage them and understand how to keep them in that helpful for learning way that they can be and not have students be overly anxious or overly sad um, because science isn't, unfortunately, always a positive thing. There's negative things and learning about those can be difficult, but we can't askew them just so that we're always having fun in the classroom. We can have fun and we can be empowered even when learning about challenging topics. Mm -hmm. So these five psychological constructs that you review in your book is a really helpful framing. And another thing that you do in the book that I really like is at the end of every chapter, you have advice for various kinds of people, policymakers, science communicators, and you have advice for science educators. So what would you say science educators can do to help students adopt an informative and positive scientific attitude? Well, I think it harkens back to the conversation we had a few minutes ago about epistemic cognition and the nature of science. So I think most of our listeners are probably aware of the next generation science standards and the switch in those standards from previous ways about thinking about learning science and teaching science is the focus on practices. In other words, what is it that scientists do and why do they do it and how does doing that help you learn science, and obviously engaging in students in doing those practices themselves, asking their own questions and being able to answer those questions. And so it really does come full circle to this issue of epistemic cognition that we talked about earlier. It's not just about teaching kids scientific content. It's about teaching them how 
science works and how it is that we know what we know. I would add also that uh, if we go back to Lee McIntyre's definition of a scientific attitude, that we want to teach the value of evidence and the value of having an open mind and reconsidering what you believe in light of new evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think those are just critical attributes in schooling and in life in general. And teachers can do that through, well, how do you know that? What evidence do you have for that? Show me what supports that. And then I, I love Jason Baer's work that he's been doing on epistemic virtue, where he talks about uh, open-mindedness as mm -hmm. a virtue, you know, and, and teachers can reinforce that. They can see a student say, oh, I get it now. I see that what you're saying is, and I've changed my mind because, and you can reward that with helping people see that it's valuable to be able to change mm -hmm. your mind and to, to take on new evidence and think about things differently. I'm not sure we do enough of that in schools. We definitely think you can't teach someone to be a scientific acceptor you know, rather than a denier, but I think you can teach people how to think like a scientist and how to adopt that scientific attitude. And if you do that, I think uh, the step towards greater public understanding of science can be taken. Yes. So that wraps things up really nicely. Um, thank you for doing that. And, and, you know, thank you for writing this book and discussing these five psychological constructs and how they relate to science denial and then providing policymakers and science educators and science communicators with so many great ideas about what to do about science denial. So I, I really want to encourage our listeners to get your book. Again, the title is Science Denial, Why It Happens and What to Do About It. It's published by the Oxford University Press. And it's, it's a great read. It's a wonderful gift for educators and communicators and anybody in people's lives. So I encourage the, everyone listening to go out and pick it up. And Barbara and Gail, thank you again so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us today, Jeff.